This is the sermon, Sermon on the Mount that is preached by Jesus. Uh, If you were to read through this, Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7, it'll probably take you, for a slow reader, 15 minutes. 15 minutes. I cannot believe that Jesus would give a 15-minute message. I got to believe that the message that Jesus would have preached would have been two or three hours long. And so we're only going to keep you for two hours today. But uh, that's, that's what he would have preached. It's probably a two or three hour message. Before we get to, to this study, I do want to read something that I, I read that D. Morton Lloyd-Jones had written. If uh, you don't know D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a doctor. He was a physician turned pastor, preacher, and author. And he said this, quote, There is nothing... There is nothing more important in the Christian life than the way in which we approach the Bible, the way in which we read it. It is our textbook. It is our only source. It is our only authority. We know nothing about God and about the Christian life in a true sense apart from the Bible. Yes, amen. Can we all say amen to that? You, You only know Christ. You only know what you're supposed to do as a Christian if you know what the Bible has to say. That's why Jay Adams going back to biblical counseling is so appropriate, so needed. I quote this here for a reason. Our study in the Sermon on the Mount will generate questions. It's going to generate questions in your own heart. The questions of our personal fidelity to the Scriptures. How are we, okay, being true to the Scriptures? I heard someone mention the other day that there is some folks, they're Christians, that have their Christians' lives segmented in little little uh, circles. You know, they call them silos. Well, here at work, I'm this kind of person, this kind of person. Folks, if you're a Christian, you should be that across the board. I don't care if you're at school, if if you're at work or whatever, it should be across the board. You're a Christian in every segment of your life. You don't bifurcate any of those kinds of things. So it's going to bring about questions, questions of our life in Christ. Is it true? Is it genuine? Is it sincere? Is it sincere? At the end of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says these words, and and they're heart-stopping, folks. I I read them, and and I get scared when I read them. Matter of fact, why don't you turn there? Matthew chapter 7, I... I don't want to go too far without reminding you, this is the end of this sermon. And he says to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. All of us could say that, right? Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Even if you know who he is. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. In other words, at work, you need to be a Christian. At school, you need to be a Christian. In your neighborhood, you need to be a Christian. In your family, you need to be a Christian. It's all over that you need to be a Christian. It's not just in one place. Not just when you come to Grace Community Church and you dust off your Bible. And you, and you walk to the, to, the, uh, to the auditorium. No. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name, preach, or maybe even foretell, whichever they're, 
is being meant there. And, and in the name, cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Are you serious? All of these things that they're doing, that doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you perform miracles. Just because you do whatever you do in the church. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I get chills just thinking about it. To hear the words of God when you see him face to face, when faith becomes sight, and and I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And, And so I want to set that as that's what the goal is in the end. God wants all of you to know his son completely and thoroughly, not just on Sunday, not just on a a Bible study night, but all the time in your life. I remember sitting with my children. We talk about God all the time at our dinner table, at our lunch table. We talk about the things of God all the time. One said that to Pastor MacArthur. After he preaches on Sunday, we go home and have lunch and we talk about the message. He says, oh, you're roasting me. I says, yeah, we are. We're we're trying to understand and let percolate in our hearts as to what you're teaching. Well, folks, that's what we should be doing every single day. I never knew you. I hope no one in this room would hear that at the end. Uh, Folks, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to grandstand here, but I believe this is this preaching here from Jesus, is one of the most pivotal portions of Scripture for self-examination. Notice what I just said, self-examination. How do I know that? Because you get to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, don't judge lest you be judged. I'm not here to judge anybody, but you need to judge yourself. You need to check your own heart. That's what this is about. This is to take self-examination. And I got to tell you, folks, if you're going to be here, this is going to be intense self-examination. It's going to take out the microscope and, and, and to take it down real low and to see who you are. It has been intense to study this sermon. It makes me stop often. Speak to God. What are you doing here? Sometimes you just remain silent when you've studied something like this and say, God, what are you doing in my life? Who are you in my life? Are you real in my life? I got to tell you, it grabs the inner person and and it, it makes them shake a little bit. It should. It ought to. This is the word of God. And this is not only the best preacher there ever was, Jesus. Friends, the heart should go a flutter. What is happening is God is at work, and he's at work in the sinner's heart, and that's what we are as sinners. And I hope, Lord, I hope the Lord does that in your own heart. I hope that it brings you to, okay, face yourself. Who am I? This last uh, conference for ACBC, they asked me to do a message on who am I? And I'm nothing. I'm a sinner. That's what I am even as a counselor doing counseling for others who are sinners. We have 
just come off of this two-year study of Zechariah. When the prophet ends that wonderful book, he leaves us in the millennial kingdom. And that's a great place to be left. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount points the believer to the kingdom of heaven, to the, those who are going to inherit the earth. We'll hear that over and over and over again as Jesus expounds here, as he preaches here. This kingdom is the rule and the reign of God. This is the rule and reign of God to do his will in your heart until his kingdom comes. And at the same time, I'm going to say his kingdom is already here. The Sermon on the Mount is in actuality to be an expression of his sovereign rule and reign. John's book, Slave, is an excellent book to read alongside of this. Because that's what we are. God's reign was there before you were born, before Jesus, and it's still here now. Even before you became a believer, and, and I look back at my, my life before Christ, he, he was already acting there. He was already doing something there, and it was good. And it was good. Even though there's a lot of ugly there, there was still good because he was pointing me in the right direction. You see, to belong to the people of God is to belong to the kingdom of God. In this sermon, Jesus is announcing that the kingdom is here and now. The kingdom is here now, and yet it's still to come at the same time. The already, this is what my seminary professor used to say, is the already and the yet to come. And that may be a little confusing at times, but that's what it is. Folks, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ in the earth, where Zechariah left us off, is what the Sermon on the Mount is preparing us for. It's preparing us for that thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. The Sermon on the Mount didn't get that name right away. Matthew wrote it back in, I think, 70 AD, something like that. It wasn't until Augustine, probably the fourth century, and he then gave it that name, and it stuck, and it's always been called that. Folks, this sermon defines clearly defines the authority of God's word. Clearly defines the authority of God's word. This sermon defines the nature of God's people. This sermon defines the essence of Jesus' teaching on kingdom living. This is how we are to be living. This is what we are to be doing as we live out this Christian life. The doctrine that is taught in this text, the application of that doctrine as well, should awaken the Christian to a deep devotion, a deep devotion of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. And in essence, folks, and, and I, I want to say it's supposed to produce a holy life. That's what our lives are supposed to be, holy. It's supposed to be different. When you're at work, somebody should say, not just because you tell everybody about Jesus, but because they see that you're different than everybody else, that you walk with God. That's what's supposed to happen. The Christian is to realize that the law that is taught here can only be lived, listen to this, by merciful grace. That's the grace of Jesus Christ being poured out upon you. You can't do this on your own. It's an impossibility. 
John Calvin saw that the only way a believer could live out the Sermon on the Mount was because of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their life. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. It's an impossibility. Additionally, Calvin concluded the only way possible to live out the Sermon on the Mount was complete dependence on God. Here I am, Lord, do what you want. Do what you will. It's not my life. It's your life. Some argue that the only way to live out the commands of the Sermon on the Mount is to withdraw from society. Some have tried that. Okay, they hide in a cave. They become a hermit. That doesn't work, folks. That doesn't work. Uh, there's a cloister in, in uh, Israel that uh, we had seen where they, they, the monks went away and they stay in that, uh, that cloister, but they don't touch anybody else's life. Folks, that doesn't work. You have some societies that even do those kinds of things, like the Amish. They go and they, they live different than everybody else, but they don't pass on Christ to everybody or anybody. Frankly, they don't even pass on Christ to the next generation. Please note this, friends. Please note this. There's going to be a tightrope that we're going to walk here. A balance between uh, ourselves and strict implementation of this, okay? And I don't want it to seem like I'm, I'm trying to lay down law for you. It's strict implementation and the desire to see grace displayed. That, that's where we live, that tension between the world of, of doing these things, okay? But at the same time, it's God's grace that produces those things, and folks, you can see that throughout the scriptures of Philippians 2, 10. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is in you to work and to will his good pleasure. You work out your salvation, he's in you to work out your salvation. That happens over and over in the scriptures. It's him and it's me. I have a responsibility. I just can't say, let go of God. I have to be doing something about it. So you'll experience this tension that's going to exist, and it should exist. One commentator said this, and I want to show you a little bit of the theology, the doctrine behind this. The Sermon on the Mount does not apply. This is a quote, by the way. The Sermon on the Mount does not apply to believers because, to I'm sorry, to unbelievers. Let me start that over again. Sermon on the Mount does not apply to believers because it belongs to an old dispensation. Okay, this is what it's this is something for the old dispensation, meaning before. It was given before the cross and the resurrection and no longer applies. Some have argued that the Sermon on the Mount does not apply because it belongs to a future dispensation. Sermon on the Mount expresses the ethic of the millennial kingdom. Folks, I remember this debate. It was a debate. Seminary professors up in the chapel. And as Dr. Thomas is there and, and Dr. MacArthur and all of these men, and they're, they're talking about this, the dispensations. Folks, this message is for both the old and the new. I believe it's God's standard. And God doesn't change. And since he doesn't change, his standard cannot change. So it's for both. It's for all. It's for the living and the 
millennial kingdom, but it's also living today. It's also living in the Old Testament. God just made it easier for us. He only gave us two commandments instead of ten. This is the standard of our God. And it's for his people yesterday, today, and forever. Remember, it is not until the eternal state that your completely absence of sin. There's complete absence. I'm sorry, there's complete absence of sin. Just so you understand that, it's not until we get there that there's no more sin ever again. Jesus' message in these three chapters is a message that God was calling his people to himself, basically. There's an Old Testament prophet, you know him, Isaiah. You don't need to turn there, but just jot down 52.7. And he's saying, look forward to this. And this is the Isaiah 52.7. He says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's Jesus. He's bringing good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. I, I, I thought about that word happiness there. Why did they ever translate it happiness? Well, you know, when you get to the Beatitudes, it says blessed. Guess what that word really is? Happy. Happy. Folks, we should be the happiest people on earth. We should be the happiest people on earth. Happy. Because he announced salvation and we received it. But now he has arrived. That is Jesus. And the urgency of Jesus' preaching is that the people would repent. And that's what he's calling for them to do is repent. Repent because their legalistic lifestyle was hypocrisy. Because all they cared about was what was on the outside, not what was on the inside. That's all they cared about. What do I look like to everybody else? Jesus called them to a new standard. A standard I said was impossible without the grace of God, and Calvin said was impossible without the grace of God, and everyone else since has said is impossible without the grace of God and the mercy of God. And again, I want you to know, I'm not trying to manipulate people to behave differently. I I don't try to do that. I'm not trying to make people feel guilty or inadequate. The message is the message. What God has to say is what God has to say. And you take it from there and you do with it what you want to do with it. I'm not going to live out your Christian life. I've got enough problems living out my own Christian life. Can I have an amen to that? Okay. For the weeks and months ahead, I'm not here to try to make you feel hopeless. I can't live up to that standard. I'm not here to do that. I don't want to create despair. I don't want to create misery. This wonderful sermon should actually create hope, should actually create grace. It is a wonderful sermon of getting in your face, Telling you what you need to hear. It's like having that dear friend who would come to you and not afraid of telling you, you know what we are doing is wrong. And you need to do it this way. It's like when my kids got saved. I said to them, you're no longer just my daughter. You're now my sister. And if you see your dad messing up, you better talk to him. You better confront him. And they remember that message. (laughs) (laughs) They remember that message. And I'm very glad that they did. 
I'm very glad they did. Sinclair Ferguson said this, It is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. And as we walk this walk, the the Christian walk, he's, he's growing us. I remember saying to my doctor friend here, so George, if we have a Christian that has a flat line and they're not growing, what are they? Dead. Not just mostly dead. They're dead. There needs to be some growth. Yes, it may be on a, on, on a wave, but it's going to happen. The kingdom living is antithetical to the living of our society. It's against what our society believes and what our society is doing. And I got to tell you, it's becoming more and more corrupt and more and more ugly. The believer's lifestyle is a lifestyle defined by the king, though. We're opposed to all that is sin-promoting. We should always be opposed to what is sin-promoting, what is dishonoring to God. God is opposed to all that is sin. He put his son on the cross. Sermon on the Mount was written to portray and given a, an illustration of the Christian life. The Christian life and the kingdom to come. This must have been a blow. Though, could you imagine being a first century Jew? This, the everyday Jew is hearing this and he's looking at the Messiah to come and, and they're looking for a materialistic economic uh, overthrow of the Romans and everybody else that's been uh, subjugating them. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for this kind of Messiah. Matthew, the tax collector, is, it's ironic that he even writes this and that you're not to look for that uh, economic situation. They were looking for political emancipation. Their deliverer was going to overthrow Rome and its oppressors. That's what they wanted. Matthew lays out what is going to be the reality. And it is nothing like the Jewish nation thought. Nothing like the Jewish nation believed. Matthew in this gospel, and by the way, this is just going to be introduction, maybe a couple of verses in the beginning there, but that's, it's just, that's all we're going to look at today. But Matthew in this gospel is writing in such a way to persuade the believer, the reader, that the kingdom of heaven is not materialistic, is not economic, but it's spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom, folks. It is not about military power. But it's about deference to your neighbor. It's about loving them, no matter who they are or what they are, what they've done to you, even if they've cut you off on the freeway. But it doesn't say that in the Bible. But we can extrapolate that, can't we? One very essential understanding is is this passage is this. The passage and the preaching is not saying this. I want you to understand it is not saying this. Live like this and you will become a Christian. Not saying that. It is saying because you are a Christian, live like this. Friends, I can't tell you how many times I give this passage to somebody who's coming in for counseling. Maybe somebody here. I don't know. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I ask him to read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 to the counselees. Please read that. This is what I want you to do. I want you to look at the various portions that are there, and I want you to tell me how does it affect your heart? 
And I want them to come back to the counseling session. Just tell me what it affected. What areas of life do you struggle with when you read the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7? What verses are most meaningful to you? Where do you see yourself failing in the Sermon on the Mount? Write that down. Where do you need to repent? Now, folks, many know how to repent or say, please forgive me. But they don't know how to change. That's where the problem comes in. How do I now change my life not to do that again? I screamed and yelled at my kids. I don't want to scream and yell at my kids anymore. Well, how do you change that? Get new kids. No, I'm only kidding. (laughs) No, no. Handling it different, folks. Handling it different. And, And I believe that we get that right here. The reason I direct folks to the Sermon on the Mount I want them to do a heart exam. Oh, don't we not always have to do a heart exam? We need to find out. First of all, for me as a counselor to find out, am I dealing with a believer or not a believer? Because if they just take this, like one couple, they read Matthew 5, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. They thought, I meant just that. No, I meant the whole thing. And they just kept making excuses and excuses and excuses. And so I, 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 I don't know. But even David, King David in Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. That should be our prayer. So tell me about me. Where where am I failing? What do I need to do and what do I need to change? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Dealing with a believer and unbeliever. If I'm dealing with a believer, I... I, uh, I cannot tell them to, if I'm dealing with an unbeliever, I cannot tell them to do these things because guess what? It's impossible. If I'm dealing with a believer, I can say, okay, let's look at this. I'm not here to create Pharisees, folks. Got plenty of them. Don't need more. Just because you have the outside taken care of, just because it looks good, that's not what we're talking about here. One must be born again, born again into the spirit. If you're going to be able to do anything that the Sermon on the Mount says or to live as the Sermon on the Mount has ordained you to live or called you to live, guess what? You need to be a believer already. If you're not, folks, Pastor Carl, myself are here anytime. You've got elders in this room. You speak to them. Give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can go from there. This sermon has been described as, listen to this, quote, and this is by Augustine, a perfect standard of the Christian life. Perfect standard of the Christian life. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, it is wrong to ask anybody who is not a Christian to try to live or practice the Sermon on the Mount. To expect Christian conduct from a person who is not born again is heresy. Is heresy. Whitewashed tombs is, I think, what Jesus called them. You just got the outside taken care of, but the inside is dregs, ugly. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to tell his listeners here 
that even though folks around them may think that they are unfortunate fools, okay, that they're still blessed. You're going to hear over and over how blessed you are as a believer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Over and over again. That's what you are already. Already because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is going to be speaking to his disciples. But also at the same time, he has a great crowd that is gathered around him in Galilee. He has this great crowd, but at the same time, he's trying to speak to his disciples. Uh, What we have here in Matthew is different than Luke. It doesn't mean that there's a contradiction. It's just that they see it from different perspectives. I want you to see the setting of what we're looking at here. Jesus was traveling in the Galilean region. Galilean region is the upper part of Israel. When it says that he's traveling in the Galilean region, he could have gone up into Lebanon. Lebanon's not that far away, up to the north. He could have gone to the east, uh, which would have been Syria on the other side of the Galilee. Uh, So he could have been in those places, but he's in that region, okay? And that's what's happening. People are hearing about him. People are hearing about him. They're hearing about, guess what? His healing ministry. You know, people are coming there that are epileptics and they're getting healed. The people that are coming there that are blind are getting to see. All of those kinds of things. Jesus is doing that and more and more people are gathering around. The miracles cause them to come to him at that point. They wanted to receive healing. Could you imagine living in the first century? They didn't have a health care Okay, in those days, you you just tried to get along. You just tried to get along. There are some other things to highlight here before we get too deep into this study. There are certain subjects that keep coming up over and over and over again. They have have great meaning for us as well. The first and and probably the most prominent that will keep coming up is the phrase kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Jesus is pointing the hearers here to the rule of God and and that we need to bow our knee before him and that we need to be looking and thinking about God's glory and his holy reign. It is a kingdom and it's his kingdom and it is his sovereign rule. Um, uh, Since you're anchored and you've been here with us, I know nobody here is selfish, right? Right? But that's what he's trying to get rid of, is the selfish aspect of our hearts. That's what he's dealing with here. Our kingdom is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Bill. And so just announcing that the kingdom has come, since the kingdom of God, they are to repent. You can see that in Matthew chapter 4. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4? I, I love Matthew Uh, It's such a wonderful prelude to chapter 5. You have the beginning part of uh, of Matthew is the temptation of Jesus. What does Jesus use every single time he's tempted? Scripture. What do you use every time you're tempted? Uh, I'll give in this time, but I won't do it next time. 
Um, what, what, what is it? No, it should be Scripture. It's like 1 Corinthians uh, 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you such as common to man, and God is faithful, and he will provide a way through it. So here we are in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says this, from that time, okay, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, that's wonderful. Folks, some people hear that over and over and over again. I've, I've talked to people who've been in church for 30 years. They heard it over and over and over again, and they never, never did it until 30 years later. And somehow God awakens them after 30 years of hearing it. The kingdom is here, but it's on its way as well. It's a sweet paradox. It really, truly is. The kingdom of God has come because Jesus the Messiah has come. But the kingdom that Zechariah described back in Zechariah was talking about these horses and these cooking pots having this holy to the Lord written on them. That's something that we can't even imagine here. But that was a different kingdom. It was the millennial kingdom that we're talking about. But the kingdom of God now is looking forward to that. Beloved, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, longs. I got to tell you, he longs for his hearers to live lives to become what he is preaching here. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. What an honor, what a glory offered to Yahweh as we grow in our faith and our obedience to Jesus Christ. And, and I can't go too much further because when you get to the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then what does he say after that? Teaching them to observe all that I have given you. We only have 15 minutes of it in this message. Two to three hours of it. And so there's so much more to learn Let me read some of this because I want to give you a, a flavor or an introduction uh, of where we are going to go uh, with this passage in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. Capernaum is on the north um, uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a small little town. They got a, they got a temple there, as I remember it, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. <clears throat> this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, uh, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way, the, the Jordan also enters into the Sea of Galilee. There's a, a Jordan there, and there's a Jordan after the Sea of Galilee, just so you know that, and I have that picture. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time on, Jesus was preaching, and he was saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Could you imagine having this guy walking by the sea, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting it into the sea? They're making their living by being fishermen. 
I, by the way, folks, there aren't many different ways to make a living, but they're making a living by the, uh, by, as fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Wait a minute. Is that, is that an opportunity? Is that a job opportunity? Uh, doesn't sound like one, but these men follow him. Immediately they left their nets. Immediately. I love that. They left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James and the son of Zebedee and, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them immediately. They left their boat and, and their father. Can you imagine that? Leaving your dad. This is the family business. They abandon it and they follow him. Jesus must have had some presence. Jesus must have had some draw. Not, not just the miracles, because that's not even mentioned in here. Just the person. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, who were those suffering various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Folks, that's what leads up to the Sermon on the Mount. And now you have Jesus. And he's there. This same Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to us, to us. He wanted the listener to hear this one message. Look at your sin. Look at your sin. You see, folks, no matter what others may have said that are not at Grace Church, it's not until you see your sin that you realize you need a Savior. It's not until you see how much in the negative column you are, so to speak, that you see that you need Jesus Christ. Remember that. Folks, this is what I hear you saying right now. But Bill, we're already believers. Can I ask you to be patient with me? Listen anyway. Listen anyway. The Lord may convict you in some areas of your life that will be mentioned here over the weeks and months ahead. You can clean up your life pretty good. You can get rid of the drinking and the partying and the swearing and the stealing. And, but when it comes right down to it, do you have a whole heart for Jesus Christ? Do you have a, a heart for all his demands? Because he has many of them. Friends, I use this sermon to challenge each and every one of us. I use this sermon to challenge the counselees that come into my office. I want them to see how God addresses their soul. I care about their soul, believe it or not. I mean, that's what a, a pastor is supposed to do. That's what a shepherd is supposed to do. We care about how you're handling life. 
I want them to see how God wants them to handle life. The solution is Jesus Christ. He is the answer to the problem. And folks, this is just a preliminary look at what we're going to look at. So why don't we turn, and I know we have a few minutes, and I'm sorry that if you get down to the auditorium too late and you can't get a seat, but go out to the tent. Be warm, be filled, be in the tent. (laughs) But let's look at Matthew chapter 5. I wanted to get there if I could, and uh, I will do that. I will not be insulted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Jesus reached out to the crowds. He, he wanted to bring them in. He wanted them to hear the truth. He wanted to bear on their souls. He wanted to put pressure on their souls. He wanted them to see what God demands of them. Additionally, Jesus was speaking to his disciples here specifically, teaching and discipling them on their lives and what they needed to do. So I love discipleship and getting involved in men's lives, women's lives, because it's about discipling them to become more full in their relationship with Jesus Christ. He was speaking to the crowds, their need, but he was also speaking to his disciples on how to grow. Jesus was explaining the very exacting nature of the message. When we get to chapter 6, it's just going to blow you away. It's not just what you do on the outside, but it's what you're thinking on the inside. He's going to get there. He's going to be like a surgeon, you know, just opening up the wounds and pulling out the garbage. I love that. Take it all. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, folks, I need to let you know, if Bill Shannon can climb this mountain, it's not really a mountain, okay? It's a hill, okay, that's very steep, okay, that you go up. We were up at the top. We came down and then went back up. a large hill is what it is, okay? Maybe over 2,000 years has been worn down a little bit. I don't know. But if Bill Shannon can do it, anybody can do it. He sat down. In those days, the position of a teacher was to sit down. I once did that when I was teaching in children's ministry, sat down in front of the kids. They're going, that's what Jesus did. I think I can do it. (laughs) I wouldn't do that here because you can't see me. Um, I climbed that mountain, large hill, Verse 2, he opened his mouth. He opened his mouth. In Psalm 78, it says basically the same thing. It says, I will open my mouth. Psalm 78, folks, you need to know the connection because some of you just came here to Grace Church. We have in our children's ministry something called Generations of Grace. That's where we got that title for Generations of Grace was out of Psalm 78, Another pastor and myself were uh, working through this. And let's turn to Psalm 78. I'm going to leave you with that. I want you to see how important the Sermon on the Mount is in our passing on to the next generation. Folks, and by the way, it's not the church's responsibility to pass it on to your children. Okay? It's your responsibility to pass it on. The church is there to facilitate and help and strengthen. But in Psalm 78, we saw verse 2 there, as I will open my mouth in a parable. Verse 5, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. We are commanded to teach the next generation. 
that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put on their put their confidence in God and not forget and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God that is the call to every single parent Pass it on to your children. That's why we sat around at lunchtime to talk about the message. And I'd say to one, you know, what are you going to do with hearing that message? How are you going to apply it to yourself? They couldn't wait to get to dad. How are you going to apply it, dad? What are you going to do about it, dad? I loved it. It was great. That's what it's about, folks. How do you apply this message to your life? What do you do in response to hearing Jesus preaching? Not Bill Shannon, Jesus preaching. The gospel is not about self-effort, folks. The gospel is about grace. That's God's attitude towards us. He wants us to take on his characteristics. We were created in his image. Romans 5.29 says that we're moving in that direction of his image. Let's put that image on. Let's be blessed, incredibly blessed. And see what this passage, this sermon has to say. Can I say this? This is the last advertisement on this message. This sermon is of spiritual incomparability. There is nothing else like this. This There's nothing else like this. John MacArthur, just so I can keep my job. Supposed to have some chuckles on that one. John says this in his commentary. He says, not just that men do right, but they be right. Did you hear that? It's not just that you do those things, but that you be those things. Let me close. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the word of, of God, the word of life. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be that word. Lord, as we dive into this message of the Sermon on the Mount, may our hearts continually be transformed. Uh, as it says in Romans 12, too, that we be transformed. And so, Lord, I pray that, that that would happen here, that anchored fellowship would grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and that, Lord, we would call you blessed because of it. Thank you for it, and thank you for these folks. Uh, give them a great day of worship in your name. Amen.